You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Twenty twenty has been quite the year. It's been a year in which we've seen many people within the church capitulate to the culture and in particular to the dictates of governors and other elected officials across the country. Many churches have been closing their doors and in particular, they've stopped singing. In today's episode, we talk with Ben Zorns. Ben's the executive pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, where he serves alongside Toby Sumter, Doug Wilson, and a host of other faithful men and women. In this episode, we'll talk to Ben about why Christ Church has been such a pivotal force for good in the church and in the culture, how it can spur courage for other people, and in particular, why men need to start singing in church like men. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And today we have a very special guest. We have Ben Zorns, and Ben is the executive pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. Ben, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So, Ben, the first thing I want to ask you is, is this the same Christ Church where, where Doug Wilson is the pastor? Correct. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Some people will certainly read it that way. You guys are definitely sort of a lightning rod in the culture right now. But I, I want to ask you, for people who don't know, the executive pastor moniker, what, what exactly does that title mean and what do you do at the church? Yeah, well, I am largely, uh, my, my task is like the uh, helping all the stallions in our stable to, you know, sort of gallop the same way, you might say. Um, and, uh, you know, what the mission, the direction of the church, try to make sure all of our various ministries um, are, are going the same direction, have what they need. So a lot of, a lot of the administrative side of things, um, kind of the uh, sometimes the junk drawer, you know, you could call me the junk drawer of the office, if you will, <laughs> you know, um, various other projects that need, uh, pulled across the finish line. Um, so, you know, help with like the, uh, the administrative side of things, um, help just make sure that the church and the ministries are running smoothly, have what they need and, uh, the staff get paid that, <laughs> that sort of thing. All very important things. And I, I think but, as you would be the first to attest, there's, behind media ministries and the church and everything you guys do, the cultural engagement. Uh, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes uh, as well in that process. So one of the things, Ben, on your Twitter profile, it says you're on the adventure of living for Jesus by loving your wife and kids. So you're married. You have, what, four kids now? Yeah, just had our fourth. So he's about two months old and awesome. uh, hasn't quite figured out the sleeping through the night thing, but <laughs> we're all good. We're all good. It's part of the adventure. That's, that's part of the adventure. By number four, you have a little bit of experience, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, your Twitter handle also says that you're guitar ninjaing. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, I, <laughs> Self-explanatory. That's right. Yeah. You, should, you should see me shred, uh, shred the fretboard. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So that is one of my first questions for you, Ben, is that you do have a background in music. Correct. Um, and just curious how you ended up in Moscow and how long you've been there. Yeah. I mean, so my background in music was, uh, you know, I kind of came 
my, my dad was a youth pastor and I kind of came into my teen years um, during you know, kind of the, when the modern worship movement was really taking off, you know, the, the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and my dad was a youth pastor and I kind of started, you know, he had a guitar in the closet that I picked up and started uh, fiddling away at. And, um, pretty soon was you know, leading worship and, and, and that sort of thing. Wrote songs, recorded, recorded songs, did, did that for a good couple of years, probably about a decade. Um, helped, helped plant some churches, led worship uh, for, for some church plants. And um, somewhere along there, I you know, became Calvinist and, and the dominoes, as you might say, started to fall. <laughs> and I think, uh, and as, I, as, a, as a worship leader, I, I came to realize that one of the things that was really lacking was this real depth in a lot of the music that was being sung in the churches, the theology of it was uh, quite lacking. Uh, and, and seeing sort of the, as I was growing theologically and, and understanding the great truths of our faith, um, seeing that many of those were um, not reflected in the songs we were singing. Um, and then seeing that, that because uh, worship shapes our theology, realizing that the, the young people I was discipling there was such a disconnect between the songs they were singing in youth group and on Sunday mornings, even in, in, in like a main worship service, there was a real disconnect between um, their, their understanding of who God is, his nature, his character, uh, what we're, what we're called to um, that uh, it really began to awaken in me more of a pastoral um, desire. Uh, and so, uh, and then round about, you know, uh, we had our first uh, our first child, and uh, I kind of went doggone it. I'm a Presbyterian, <laughs> <laughs> and so that really sort of was was a bit of the uh, the watershed moment where I realized I needed to move as far as the ministry I had been doing, um, and in the circles I'd been doing it in, I needed to make a, a shift and a change. And and the one place that I felt was was really trustworthy and uh, the right sort of um, manliness, grit, engagement with the culture, um, men who had uh, guts of grit, um, determination, um, and, and, and uh, uh, gospel orthodoxy was, was up here in Moscow. And so we sort of, on a wing and a prayer, uh, found ourselves here. That's interesting. So had you like reached out to them, you had talked to people, um, did you first go there and then become executive pastor or were you, you invited up there for, for the job? How did that yeah. work? A, a really wonderful story of God's providence. I had applied to our Greyfriars Hall uh, pastoral training program, which our church runs. Um, basically, a three-year um, pastoral training program, um, and I applied to that. Uh, quit, quit my uh, um, the ministry position that I had back in Colorado. Um, I, I resigned from that due to some direction that the ministry was going, and like I said, my realizing where I needed to head. And so we sort of put all of our eggs in one basket um, and applied to Greyfriars. And they looked at my application and saw what I'd been doing um, there at the ministry, the church slash discipleship ministry that I've been working at there in Colorado. And they said, hey, we, we kind of have a vacancy um, on the church side of things for uh, this executive administrative uh, position. Would you, would you be interested in having a job when you move up? <laughs> And Why, yes, I would. Excited about that prospect. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, her husband having a, a, an income stream. 
Yeah, um, that is that is kind of important. That's really cool how it worked out. Minor detail, you might say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I'm yeah, curious. Was, I'm was, curious, Ben. So, the, how long ago was that? Uh, so it's been five years since we uh, moved up here. Okay. So one of the questions I want to ask you is you've had sort of a unique perspective actually on the inside of Moscow. Yeah. Um, I've had a little bit of perspective simply from pastoring and then being inside the CREC. So interfacing with obviously uh, other people from Moscow, other pastors in the denomination. But one of the questions that I think a lot of people have is they look at Moscow from the outside and they see, oh, this Doug Wilson. And, and I've really noticed kind of like two different streams of thought on that. One is Doug's the Messiah. He's a prophet. He's amazing. We should all move there. Everything he does is gold. Uh-huh. And then on the other side of things, um, you'll hear, you know, I'm sure you've heard this too, like Moscow, oh, you want to go be a part of a cult. Right. So you've seen it from the inside. I- I'm curious if you can give us just a-, a look at what it's actually like, both to work with Doug, but also just to be in Moscow. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you ever, um, if, if your listeners ever have the, the chance to swing through Moscow and, and come for a worship service, you'd, you'd find that it's the most normal place. There's, there's, no, there's no, uh, antenna sticking out of the, the congregants' heads. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it's normal. Uh, and, and we have our, uh, our, our parishioners, our, our, the members of our church have nine to five jobs and they have, uh, businesses that they're starting. They have kids that they're raising. They have, uh, families that are, uh, laboring to educate their children uh in a christian manner and and um uh and, and there's you know it's in one sense it's the most uh normal and van- vanilla <laughs> sort of uh, sort of thing you might um come across and and um uh, and, and you're right there's a from the outside there's a there's a perception of like oh this is um yeah, I think there's, and especially during the whole coronavirus lockdowns, we've seen a, our, our church has probably grown by 20% um, due to people just California, Minnesota, Seattle, yeah. saying that's it. We're gone. We're leaving. Right. Um, and I don't blame them. And we think, and, and, and they're good, hearty. Um, they're not coming with uh, baggage um, right. necessarily, but they're, they're going, okay, we need to go someplace where, um, there's some fortifications that we can raise our children in a, in a godly community. Uh, we can raise them with, with people that are, um, have the same objective uh, for their families and for their nation, for their uh, city. Um, and so I think there's that. Um, on, the, on the flip side, you have people that have this perception that we're, um, you know, we're, we're toxic or we're, there's heresy and that, you know, all, all that, um, all those libels that get um, thrown around on the internet. Um, and I think, I think that's primarily because uh, Pastor Doug and, and, and the folks around here, um, we, we aim to speak and articulate the gospel in such a way that has actual teeth, um, that has uh, true conviction behind it. Um, as, as George Whitfield once said, uh, I will not be a velvet mouthed preacher. Mm. Um, and, and, and our aim is to preach the word, um, as the word is, is to be preached, <laughs> which, which has, has some hard things to say, but those hard things, 
um, are what make the softest hearts. Um, right. And um, so yeah, those are some of my reflections on it. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, and I know Doug has said that in, I think it's in Mother Kirk, right? That just, yeah. you know, same, exactly what you're saying, that hard preaching makes for soft hearts. Um, one of the interesting things, Ben, and I would encourage people too, the other way that they can interface with the church um, is through Grace Agenda. Yeah. Um, we've gone up there for that a couple of times. Uh, it's a really phenomenal experience. One of the things that I would share with our listeners and uh, you probably have heard this too before, but like going to worship service, um, going to hear people speak at the conference side of things. One of the things that interested me most was, you know, Doug, Toby, yourself, other people talking about patriarchy and, you know, particularly sexual roles, femininity, masculinity yeah. uh, from a biblical sense. But I went to the conference and all the men were holding the babies. Right. And I was like, Oh, and I mean, I, cause I'd never been there. So I just assumed that it was going to be what I've seen in a lot of communities that are on the patriarchy side where it's like the men kind of like the the children are like the servants of the family, you know? Um, And that really wasn't the case at all. Like all the dads are in the back with all the infants. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, it's not the Von Trapp, um, dog whistle for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no dog whistles in Moscow. The other thing I would point out that I thought was really cool. Um, we went to one of the conferences. Um, and I think somehow we ended up talking to Toby Sumter's wife and yeah. got invited over to their house for lunch. And what I would say is it was like the way that the, the community is able to cultivate hospitality, yeah. uh, fellowship, I remember walking away just feeling like my overwhelming desire was, I want this. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but, but I want it. You know, whether it's Toby taking somebody's infant so the mom can eat her dinner or the conversation or, the, you know, singing the doxology before we eat or praying or whatever it is, it was so hearty and rich and robust. Right. And I think, again, I think that's a side that people don't really see from, say, reading a Doug Wilson book or, uh, reading one of his blog posts. It is this lively community. Yeah. You, you see it in the, what, what you don't see in the blog posts is the amount of time that Doug invests in his local congregation. Mm. Uh, his, the, the hours that he has spent and continues to spend um, pastoring, you know, people coming into his office, um, him, uh, the, the generosity, the hospitality that they show um, to both folks outside the church community and, and within and I think that's really the main, uh, you know, the thing that we're uh, going for is Christian homes, which, which are to be places of hospitality, largesse, um, uh, cheerful, jovial. Uh, it's not, um, you know, it's just, uh, I recently read through, um, what was it, John, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions again. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just got a kick out of the one that said, um, resolves uh, not to basically not to laugh about anything on the Lord's day. <laughs> Laughter is banished. Not, this is not a slight against him, but I would, you know, if, if I were to uh, have met him, I probably would have cracked a joke and uh, <laughs> him to laugh on, on the Lord's day. You know, and that, that's what we want. Christian homes. Um, and, you know, back to your point of, you know, the dads holding the kids. Um, I think there's a point where, 
especially because we emphasize family worship, that in our worship services, the kids aren't carted off to um, children's church. They're a part of the worship service. They're called infant voices are to raise their, their, their songs of praise to God. Um, Psalm 8, you know, that sort of thing. When they're little babies still nursing, you know, mom's, mom's in charge there. But as the kids get to start the squirmy age, I think it's really important for dads to take a lead role there and, and uh, begin teaching their children to sit still, begin to teach them to listen, begin to point at the, the, the bread and the wine and say, what, is, what does that remind us of? What, what does that represent? What are we doing when we do this? Um, look right. at that child up there being baptized. What does your baptism mean? Um, and that you, the father is your worship isn't to sit there stoically uh, jotting down every, everything that the preacher is saying. Your job is to teach your children um, to worship the Lord. Um, and, and part of your act of worship is uh, helping your children learn to worship God. Um, that's the chief end of man, after all, is to glorify <laughs> right. God. And so that's why God gave you children, was so that they would learn to glorify God by worshiping him with his people on the Lord's day and then flowing out into their schoolwork and then their, their, their vocational work when they, when they come of age um, to do so in a way that honors and glorifies God in their business dealings, in their marriages, and in their families. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think some really good points. And again, I just encourage our listeners, if you have the chance to get to Moscow, those are all things like, I think that's what's interesting th- about them, Ben, is like you, you can't necessarily tell people as much as you can show them. Right. And then they can, they can be a part of it. And hopefully I think I would assume it's your goal as well, but this gets into my next question. There is a bent in a lot of Christendom, especially reform folks like myself, guys who listen to the show, we will either joke or actively talk about, I just want to move to Moscow. Sure. Right. And one of the things I've said is some people should, right. but I would think for you guys as well, the goal is to replicate Moscow in different ways in different fashions in other places as well. Is it is that right? Yeah, correct. And and we want to make sure that what we're what we end up exporting um is uh it kind of bears the same DNA or comes from the same vineyard, you might say. <laughs> right. You know, so that um the what we end up sending out um or what ends up being replicated is a is the right sort of um uh replication that it the, that it rhymes, that it's, it's, it's in harmony with um, our, our stated goal of all of Christ for all of life, for all the world. Um, uh, we, want, we do want that replicated around the world. At the same time, I think we're at an interesting moment in our nation um, and even worldwide with the whole uh, quote-unquote pandemic is that it seems like there's this moment of needing to band together uh, right. and really kind of consolidate um, uh, allegiances where you have kind of the, the, the Southern Baptists are going wobbly on, on racial issues. Um, the PCA is going wobbly on sexual issues. And then there's all these faithful um, American evangelicals going, wait a second, but what's the Bible say? <laughs> and, uh, and these American evangelicals who love God's word, who love the gospel, who um, know that the preaching of the new birth and you must be born again is, is central to the church's calling. And that all of our social justice campaigns will be just dust in the wind if it isn't accompanied by um, that, 
that root message of the gospel. You must be born again. You must have a new heart. Um, and so I think there's some really wonderful, um, uh, the lines are being redrawn <laughs> in, right. in the American evangelical world. Um, and strange alliances are forming. And, uh, and, and so I do think there's a moment of like, yeah, if, if uh, I, I think that why we see this kind of flood of refugees, if you, if you will, is that there's sort of a consolidation going on. But hopefully it's so that we can, um, from that point of strength, send out and, um, you know, like Geneva of old, you know, in, in the Reformation, it was kind of like this magnetic center for a period. And then from there, it spun out um, dozens and dozens and dozens of pastors um, to, to, the, to the four corners of the earth. And, and, um, and we, have, uh, we have the Puritans coming to America. We have the, the Dutch going to South Africa. We have right. the, the Dutch Puritans going to uh, uh, South Africa and, and around the world as a result of that centralization for a moment, um, that consolidation. And then from, it, it went out from there. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal analogy. Good, good insights there as well. And I think also because um, yourself, Doug, Toby, all the other guys cross politics, there's a ton of people there, right, who are uh, fighting the good fight and engaging on these cultural issues. I think those were the areas where the church was really not doing its job. Yeah. And so now it, it's interesting because like maybe 10 years ago, a lot of people in the church, I think, saw Doug as like, okay, he's just you know, he's just going on about sexual issues. And I, even I remember thinking like, yeah, maybe it's not such a big deal. Well, where we are now, it's like, oh my gosh, Doug was right. Yeah. We need to address these issues head on. Um, and I think that's why if, if people are doing that in the culture, they're seeing a, a huge influx of people to their churches because they're tired of dealing with sort of just vanilla, you know, inch thick crust Christianity that there's no meat inside of it. One of the things you mentioned, Ben, was the, the Christian home. And I know that you and others have advocated for both, you know, the faithful rearing, but also multiplication of children. Um, and this is sort of tied to a post-mill vision. Right. Um, you, you preached on, like, if we look, if we're faithful to multiply, um, we can take Idaho, whatever. Um, we can fill the world with God's people, essentially. My question, and, and this is mainly, I think we have a lot of listeners who ask me all the time, are you post-mill? What does post-mill mean? So I'm going to ask that question to you. And, I, and as you answer it, I, I'm kind of, I want to ask you, why is it so important? So post-mill, yes, but, but why is that important for what you guys are doing in Moscow? Well, I think uh, you know, post-millennialism is uh, obviously an eschatological uh, position um, in regarding, you know, um, where is this, where is this planet taking us? <laughs> right. What, what, what's the, uh, what's the end of the story going to be like? And, um, and, and, and I would hold to that, the, the position of post-millennialism, which uh, basically summed up is an optimistic eschatology. Um, and what I mean by that is I think the great commission will be fulfilled. Um, it will be a successful, um, uh, will be successfully carried out by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, um, the nations will be brought in to the kingdom of God mm -hmm. um, here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the, of the Lord as waters cover the sea. 
Um, and, um, and so because we have that um, hope that um, it, it's not a lost cause, um, that our, our labors, um, the, the whiff of smoke that is our life, um, that our labors are not in vain, but we are um, uh, pressing the gospel forward inch by inch, um, generation after generation of, of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, and, and the reason I think that's important is that um, it, it really grounds you um, in your daily life, um, recognizing that the most important thing to, I can do today is work hard with all my might as unto the Lord and love my wife uh, sacrificially um, to raise my children um, to fear the Lord. Um, that uh, the, the, the most spiritual thing for me to do is to smoke a brisket on, on uh, Saturday so that our, our Sabbath dinner is glorious. Um, that uh, the aroma of my home is joyful. Um, and that, uh, you know, we just had Christmas, that the squeals of laughter are, um, are loud. You know? <laughs> um, and, and in other words, uh, it, it grounds you when you come to all those parables that Jesus tells of the kingdom of God, uh, a mustard seed that will grow to a great tree um, that all the birds of the nations will come and rest in its boughs. Um, or it's like leaven in a lump that spreads through the whole thing. Um, meaning that why am I here on this earth? Well, I'm, it's, to, it's to glorify God and to pray. And what did he teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, which I think really, um, it really profoundly changes uh, your approach to the gifts uh, the earthly gifts and blessings that God gives us, um, it, it, it gets you away from sort of the, um, I think American evangelicalism has really become um, entangled with sort of this pie in the sky pietism, uh, right. this tingle up my spine, it, um, uh, sappy, feel good, um, feel good music. Um, and it really gets you away from that sort of piety into the sort of piety that gets, its, that gets dirt under its fingernails, sawdust in its eyes, flour on its apron. Right. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. Um, and I think seeing, you know, when I was in seminary, I went to a Baptist seminary. I think it was Tom Schreiner. I remember him saying, somebody asked him, what's your end times position? Um, and he said, well, my position is whatever's not going to get me persecuted. And I think there was sort of a mindset like it didn't matter. Um, yeah. you know, what you thought was going to happen. Of course, in the Baptist world, whether people could enunciate what their position was or not, it was sort of the, you know, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I've noticed from being in communities, post-mill communities, is what you mentioned, there's a hopefulness about the work that we're doing. Yep. Um, and then it creates a long-term uh, view as well. Like what I'm doing with my kids is for, the grandkids and what comes next and we're building for the future. So that really does give you a different talos yeah. um, to, to the work that you're doing. Exactly. One, one question I would ask you if somebody said, okay, 
you know, give me like three books that I could read that would be helpful yeah. uh, on this issue of post-mill theology. Wh- what would you recommend? Yeah, the, the few that really helped me um, uh, was The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray, uh, basically tracing that the, the Puritan's position was that of a, a hopeful eschatology. Um, the success of the gospel in foreign missions, um, that sort of thing. Um, the other one would be um, He Shall Have Dominion by Ken Gentry. Uh, Heaven Misplaced is what um, Pastor Doug's book would be. Um, and then I think one, one thing that uh, I'd have to scrounge up where I found it, but it was in a Spurgeon sermon. And Spurgeon wasn't necessarily a post-millennialist, but he was very much optimistic. And you might call him, a, I think, a pre, uh, an optimistic premillennialist. Um, and I remember reading one of his sermons where he said, even if there's not another convert for the next 10,000 years, it would be incumbent on the church to send her sons and daughters with greater energy and zeal to the foreign shores to proclaim mm-hmm. the gospel. Um, and I, I just remember reading that going, you know, here he is talking about 10,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> right. If we never see another convert for the next 10,000 years. Um, the church's mission doesn't change. Um, and, and we should view our mission as one which the King of Kings has sent us on, and he has purchased the victory for us. Um, and we're going out to announce uh, to the kings of the world, to the nations of this world, um, there's a new king. Um, there's a new king of this world. There's a new king of this planet. And it's not Caesar, and it's not, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's not Biden. It's not Trump. It's, not, um, it's, not, it's none of these leaders that rise and fall. Um, it's King Jesus. And, and really remembering, um, and this is something that I just I keep hammering on, especially in the midst of this uh, political rodeo we've been in this year. Right. The Christian, one of the primary Christian confessions is that Christ is king. Mm. And that is a political statement. Um, that has implications for um, our earthly government. Um, that has implications for your local mayor um, and your local city council. That has implications um, for the board of directors of your local university. Um, and and I, I, I mentioned this on, on Sunday, I think during our, our Lord's Supper homily, that in Acts 17, the pagans, um, as they hear the gospel being preached, they go, um, th- these guys are political traitors. <laughs> these <laughs> right. apostles are political traitors. They're preaching another king, one Jesus in, in Acts 17. Um, the pagans got it. What many American Christians have missed in that mm. preaching of the gospel is a preaching um, to all the nations, to all the kings, to all the powers and principalities, to, to every creature in heaven and earth. Yeah, that's so good. And I think, Ben, as you mentioned, just the that has always been an important message, but I think especially given the shamdemic and everything that's happened in 2020, um, I think the church in, in some sense, like folks like yourself in Moscow already knew this, but a lot of the mainline church is realizing, look, we either need to put up or shut up. Like we're either going to have to address these problems or we're going away. Yep. Um, a lot of them actually have said, we'll just close our doors and there won't be church. Right. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it, exactly. I, I see that as an opportunity as well for those who are faithful. One of the questions that I have, uh, in light of all of that, and especially, okay, the post-mill 
worldview. I think one of the reasons that we as a church have a hard time, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit this as a post-mill, like that's my position. Reality is the hardest thing against believing in the post-mill vision for the world. Because you look at the world, yeah. and I look particularly at the state of the church, and as Doug is fun to say, it's a white hot mess. You know, yeah. it's a dumpster fire. So one of the things I think that I've tried to uh, help people with as they contact me through the podcast and the show is, well, if you're in a really bad situation, like your church is closed, um, you know, the elders or pastor, they don't want to address these issues. You know, you've talked to them about it. They're not going to deal with it. I'm curious your advice on like, what should these people be doing? Yeah. Because and what I guess what I'm driving at is I think they need to be put in a position where they're somehow hopeful again about the church. How, how do they get there? Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I think you need to, you need to have those hard conversations with your pastors and elders. Um, and I think you need to know um, what sort of horsepower you have um, and what sort of weight you pull even in, in the church. Um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're going to a church of 2000 people, um, and the pastor doesn't even know your name, it's, it's not likely that you're going to have right. a big pull um, or, or big influence, but it might be different if you're in a church of 200 people and uh, you're maybe one of the deacons or, um, you know, you, um, or you, you have some sort of, um, you've got a good camaraderie with the elders and, and deacons and, and pastors. Um, and in that case, I'd, I'd, um, you have to weigh, um, do I have the horsepower for, um, the right sort of tangle, the right sort of fight, or is this the moment that um, all things are being revealed? You know, this is a, a, an unveiling of sorts of where our, our pastors and leaders across the nation, you see the ones that are courageous men and you see right. the ones that are uh, men that are easily led. Um, and and if, you're, if, you're, if you're a father looking at your, how you want to raise your family and you see that your church hasn't um, met together for nine months now or 10 months or whatever it is, then you might need to say, okay, I need to go where, um, uh, men, godly men are leading, uh, godly men of courage can lead me so I can lead my family in, with courage. And then the other thing is, I think one of the most liberating things when you realize that again, like I said earlier, if I just hold to that fact, Christ is King, um, God's absolute sovereignty over all details and Christ's lordship over this planet, it makes reading the headlines a lot more fun. <laughs> That's a great point. You, you can um, uh, laugh at the days to come, like the Proverbs 31 woman. Right. Uh, you, know, you, uh, you, know, you read of, oh, now there's a new strain of coronavirus in South Africa or in UK or whatever it was. And you just go, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, uh, or hands in the air and say, we, you know, um, <laughs> and, and not that you take it glibly or whatnot, but you, um, uh, you know, that God is working all things together for his good, uh, for, for his glory and for our good. Um, and so then, then you just really need to stop reading the headlines as if it's, um, you know, we oftentimes read our Bibles in light of the headlines rather than the headlines in light of our Bibles. Hmm. Yeah, and that's I, a great point. It's just vital that you get away from, uh, scrolling through your newsfeed, reading the headlines, um, uh, and then letting that shape how you read the book of Revelation, for instance, <laughs> you know, you need to say, um, uh, my, 
my theology needs to shape the way I look at this world. Right. Yeah, that, that's a phenomenal take. I think very helpful uh, insight there as well. Well, one of the things I want to do now, Ben, is I want to talk to you because you've been so uh, caught up in working on this project, but with, with the music in particular yeah. of the church. And I actually, I think these things are connected. Right. Um, one of the things I've noticed in worship is, um, in the music, I mean, in particular, is, okay, we have people telling us, like, specifically, don't sing in worship. Yeah. And then to go in the worship service with God's people and be singing the praises of God, there's something that is freeing, it fills your soul, it's necessary, especially, I, I, I have argued for the men of the church to be singing. Um, but I want to hear your take. Why is, the, why is the question of music so important, right? We hear many people in the culture say, oh, it's, you know, flip a coin. It's a heads or tails issue. Some people, basically, we, we make it just about style, right. but it's more than that. So I want to hear your take on why. Yeah. But I think you're, you're right in regards to during the pandemic when you've got um, mayors and, and uh, city councils and governors saying um, churches can meet at 25% capacity and they can't sing and the trumpet player has to wear a mask. <laughs> right. yeah. With a hole in it. Yeah, with a, yeah, with a hole in it. Um, and, and I think, again, you just have to laugh and say, uh, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, I think, um, you know, Hebrews 10 commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Um, and, and it doesn't give a, uh, uh, you know, a caveat that unless there is a, um, a, bad, a bad cold going around. Um, right. Now, of course, you know, if, if the church building burns down and, you know, I mean, there's, you can think of real emergencies where it's like, hey, we can't meet this Sunday, but we'll, We'll gather. We'll sing a we'll sing a psalm, a psalm, a short sermon, and uh, go back to our homes. Or you know, you can imagine um, that's not wrong for the elders to say, "Hey, this Sunday, due to the the flood or due to the fire, or the you know whatever it might be, we're not going to meet this Sunday." Um, but we're commanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, um, and uh, even even the uh, ecclesia, the 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 gathered ones. That's that's what church means is the ones who have been gathered together by our father um, to commune with him and, and to commune with each other, to have fellowship with God and with each other. And, and that just cannot be done on, on a, on a screen. Um, uh, and, and I think that um, uh, furthermore, why, why would we say, okay, we'll do everything but the singing part. Right. Uh, because uh, God is, Paul tells us to exhort one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which is in reference to the three uh, divisions of the Psalter, of the, of the Psalms. Um, and, and so as such, we've been commanded that in our gathering, our exhortations are to be sung exhortations. Mm. Uh, and the Christian religion is distinctively uh, musical. Unlike any other religion, it is distinctively musical. Um, and wherever Christianity is gone, uh, it's gone singing. <laughs> and, and so 
as a result, I think it's a real tragedy that many churches have not only barred their doors, but if they have met, they've said, we're not going to sing together. Because one of the wonderful things about mingling our voices together is that it's one body, but many parts. Mm. Right. And, and harmony is this, um, one of the most glorious ways that many people can be united in, in one, in one um, activity. Um, and that, in, in the church setting, is that of songs of praise uh, unto our God. Um, and so why would you want to view that as um, optional or as um, uh, sort of uh, non-essential as many of our governors have ruled it? Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's essential as uh, pulling the slots in Las Vegas. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, it's a great point. Um, and I think particularly if you know church history, I think of some of the things that Luther said, uh, a lot of the heart of the reformation was in the reformation of music. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the militant church is always the singing church. Yeah. So that's, that's hugely important. The other question and related to this. Um, so, I grew up with what we called 7-Eleven songs. Right. You know, there were seven words repeated 11 times. Um, I can remember going to church and like... And, and, four, and four, of those, uh, four of those words were la, la, la. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was the... Uh, my son calls that beta vocalizing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just not very deep. Um, yeah. I can remember going to Christmas services as kids and like the worship leader who was a guitar player. Um, he would say, well, we're going to take this traditional Christian hymn, Joy to the World. We're going to cut out like 90% of the stanzas and words, and we've right. also added a Chris Tomlin chorus. So it's right. better. And I was like, no, this is trash. This is right. really bad. I don't like it. So right. my question then from that is, how do you get from that to the Cantus Christi? And yeah. why, you know, some people might ask, why does the church need another hymn book? Right. Why is it so important? Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, we recognize that um, the Lex Arandi uh, is Lex Credendi. You know, the, the law of prayer is the law of, of faith. In other words, um, how we, um, uh, the, the worship of the church is going to shape the, the faith of the church. Um, right. Uh, and so as a result, we need to be very thoughtful about what we're singing. Um, yeah. and, and I think you see that in, the last 20, 30 years of the sorts of songs the church has been singing. And then a, uh, a generation grows up um, having never sung um, a psalm that says, you know, break the teeth of my enemy, O God. Right. You know, and, and um, vindicate me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Um, uh, Wicked men are on all sides. Um, destroy them. You know, let us conquer them in your name. Um, and, and then they, they, they see the injustices in the world, and they go, we need to do something about it. And they reach for Marxism. All right. Because they, they haven't sung um, uh, that God is a warrior, that God is a mighty man, that God is, um, the, will avenge his elect speedily, um, that he's the defender of widows and orphans. Um, as the as the Psalms would teach us to sing, and as the great hymns of the faith would 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 have us sing. Um, and the one thing I always ask people when we talk about like modern praise choruses versus old hymns, right? Say, which what pronouns are there in your songs? 
you know, not, not the, uh, which, what are your preferred pronouns? Not that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> right. And maybe that's part of it, but um, <laughs> what pronouns are, are you using? And 90% of modern worship songs are me and I. Um, there's rarely a we or us. And, and so what you have then is a very individualized uh, worship expression, you might say. Right. Rather than um, nothing about you or I in it. You know? Right. This is all about um, immortal, invisible, God only wise and light and accessible hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you're left there with like not thinking about, oh, oh Lord, how you, um, you cause my heart to pitter patter. And, <laughs> and, and I'm just enthralled uh, with you, and I'm just in love with you and I'm just in awe of your praise. And I, 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 me, me, me. Well, and so much of it, Ben, too, is we used to say this, but if you could take out God in this song and put in your girlfriend and this song still like, makes sense, <laughs> like we have a problem. So yeah, needing to have a depth, I think, of really theology, um, right. doctrinal soundness. Um, so talk a little bit about the Cantus. Um, yeah. What was your role in the yes. second, is second edition? Um, I, yeah, well, I think uh, there was a, a first edition about 20 years ago, and then they made some revisions to that. But essentially that was, yeah, it was, it was the same edition, just with a few tweaks. Um, so uh, past, Pastor Doug, what, one of the reasons they, they brought me on was with my musical background was to basically get this project across the finish line of uh, the main thing was filling out the, the Psalter, having a, a, a song for each Psalm, at least one uh, song for each Psalm represented in it. And then, you know, making sure that we, we touched all the bases of um, the church, the church year, and then uh, making sure that we didn't exclude great hymns of the faith, like amazing grace, um, uh, great is thy faithfulness. Um, uh, some, some of those good gospel, good old fashioned gospel hymns of our American heritage tradition, not, not the, not the drivel, hopefully, but yeah, um, you know, the, uh, some of those great hymns of the faith. Um, and so really we, we aim to fill out the Psalter, have, have it fully represented, having the best of church hymnody, um, represented so that a church could kind of, you know, they can, they can start on the, the, the shallow end of the pool and work their way to some of the more difficult things that we included in it. Right. Um, or if they're already at that level that they're able to sing some of those more complicated, um, uh, uh, Genevan jigs that are, that are kind of challenging to sing, but are, if you put the, um, if you put some of the, the hard work into it, it, it's the payoff is huge. Right. You know, and that's again, um, the contrast between the worship band showing up, leading four songs, um, uh, and you sort of mumbling along with your hands in your pocket versus, <laughs> um, this is the work of the people. Um, our worship each Lord's Day is the work of the congregation, not the worship leader. Um, it's not his job. It's our job. This is the sacrifice of praise that we bring, um, this, the sacrifice of sanctified lips, um, hymns of praise and thanksgiving to our God. Um, and so we need to work to learn our parts, um, to sing our parts, um, and uh, to be pre- prepared as a families and as individuals to, um, to sing heartily and loudly um, when we gather with God's people. 
Yeah, I think it's a great point, particularly about the fact that it's to do something with excellence is difficult. Yeah. Um, and that includes our singing. One of the things that I had heard in when I was pastoring, we used the Cantus. Um, people would always say, yeah, but it's so hard. Right. It's so hard to learn this. And I said, well, it takes work. And they'd say, yeah, but, you know, I can go down the street and the guy's got a guitar and exactly what you said. Like, people would even tell me, like, I like the music because I just sit there and watch it. Yeah. Um, so if, if someone came to your church, maybe they're new and they said, well, this is really hard to do. Why don't we pick something easier? Yeah. What would be your response to them? Well, I mean, very few things um, uh, that are easy are actually worthwhile or have longevity. Um, so, yeah. um, you know, if you watch your favorite sports team and they, the hard work that they put in to get to the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Olympics, um, it wasn't because they um, took the easy way out. Um, I've gotten into, into smoking meats uh, this past year or so. And, and um, yeah, you could put a microwave, you know, microwave meatballs. You know, and, <laughs> it's not the same. But then but it's way different than taking 13 hours of care over a brisket or a prime rib and, and the, 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 the delight and the, the glory of cutting into that, um, that hard work, you know? Right. Um, the payoff is much bigger. And so I think you have to re- be reminded that um, uh, at the end of a hard day's work, when you stand back and you go, oh, we finished, we finished the flooring or we, um, uh, we got the barn, we got the barn, you know, erected. And, and uh, after a hard day's work, there's nothing more rewarding than standing back and looking at your work. Um, right. You know, and, and, uh, and I think remembering that, God is active, not passive, and we should mirror him in that. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think of, that's... He set Adam in the garden to work, <laughs> not, to, not to lounge around in this you know, sort of utopic, paradise, uh, paradisical um, uh, laziness. <laughs> you know, he was right. there. Um, that's the created order, is, is, yeah, is work. Um, the music of the spheres, the, the stars um, are in their ordered dance, the heavenly host are in their ordered dance. And so should the sons of men be silent? Yeah, that is, that's really great. And I think it, it ties into my next question really well, because one of the things that I've noticed in churches, CREC and other, uh, it's really hard to get men to sing. Not, we're not even talking like to sing well, but just to do it at all. Yeah. Um, you can go in, even in places where the cantus is sung and you just hear the women crystal clear. If you're another man singing, you're like, why am I the only man singing in here? Um, why do you think it's so hard to get men to sing in church? Um, yeah, I think we've, um, this goes back to something I said earlier, that I think we've effeminized um, piety. Um, huh. In that, again, you look at, look at those worship songs and they're mostly mushy, touchy, feely sort of stuff if you look at some of the, some of the tunes that we actually included in the Contus, uh, uh, some of the old American, what are called fuguing tunes, the melody is in the tenor. And, you know, so the men are the ones who are carrying the melody. And then when they get to the parts where um, it's sort of a, uh, you know, like your, you know, the, the easiest uh, example would be um, row, row, row your boat. You know, we're familiar with kind of singing in a round. Uh, the, these fuguing tunes would kind of have those moments where, the men would start, the, ten, the bass start, tenor starts a line later, alto, sopranos, a line or two later. 
and but they're all singing the same thing kind of in a round. Um, these uh, American, uh, uh, you know, old American folk tunes that, that were, um, to, you know, are part of our American heritage. Um, the men uh, were the ones that led out on them. Interesting. Um, uh, and, and so I think, um, again, one of the reasons why it's hard to get men to sing is that um, uh, the worship leader is constantly in falsetto and in <laughs> right. skinny jeans. You know? <laughs> and, uh, no, pray tell, whatever do you mean, Ben? Right. And so I think if you, if you can cast that vision of um, putting in some hard work, learning to sing, and I think singing the sort of songs that are, that are meaty and, and, and thoughtful and, and, uh, uh, and rich, um, I think men buy in very quick when you, when you try singing a mighty fortress is our God, uh, a key or two lower than, uh, than you're typically comfortable with. And, uh, and men, men love that. Uh, men, men dig that. It's why they go to football games and scream their guts out, you know, right. Um, they'll sing, they'll chant, you know, they'll, um, they'll do rah, rah, rah for the right reason. Right. Um, and I think we need to give them, uh, the Psalter. We need to give them the songs of God and say, uh, now lead your family to sing this. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. Well, the last question I want to ask you, Ben, is related to the practical nature of this. So um, I grew up in a family that did not sing. Um, I never took music lessons. Well, never successfully. I don't know how to read music. Um, Many of the people in the church, even some of the churches that I pastored, like you're in a small town, like there were like four churches and every one of them had a piano player. Those were the only piano players. We couldn't find musicians. We couldn't find people to lead us in singing. Maybe branch out from that. Um, But to bigger places, you have some more opportunity. But I'm curious, like if people are at ground zero, like we've been doing the Chris Tomlin worship. Now we're convicted, but we don't know how to sing. How do you learn how to do that? Yeah, well, fortunately, I mean, again, living in the 21st century has all sorts of blessings with it. You know, there's, um, as in our church developed an app called, I think it's sing your part. Like, I can, I can, yeah, sing your part. And, and basically they took most of the songs that are in the contours and you can, um, select your, um, your part. If you're a bass or you're a soprano, you, you find you, you can turn up the volume on that part and learn to follow along. Uh, and, and so there's, there's plenty of resources out there for it. Um, and, and then I think the main thing is, uh, when, you know, imagine being at your grandma or your grandpa's deathbed um, and try to sing a cappella your latest um, top 10, you know, worship song. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, and and I, I began to notice this as a worship leader, that many of the songs, you know, when they come out on the, the recording and everybody's excited to listen to it, when you then try to um, uh, convert that to a congregation of 100 or 200 with a guitar and, you know, not as skilled musicians, it just doesn't play as well. It's, it was right. meant for a rock arena, you know, not, uh, and what you're going to sing it at a deathbed or um, around the campfire um, is uh, much more uh, likely to be the amazing grace. Um, right. The, um, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus or, you know, something like that, uh, that's going to have uh, a bit more teeth to it, a bit more, um, predictability in the melody. I mean, there's technical stuff I could go into, but 
the melody isn't kind of all over the place. It's more interesting actually. <laughs> right. Well, and what I found too, it's interesting, like with the sea shanties, that's kind yeah. of been um, for the last year or so I've been listening to those and it's, it's weird because myself and my sons were not great singers, but a sea shanty is like basically like barroom men, like chant, right. yelling, singing. Yo-ho, yo-ho. <laughs> right. And I, I remember thinking like, as we're learning this, the kids love them. They're like, dad, you know, turn it up. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, if we had more uh, music like that in the church, I think that men would and could sing their repeatable melodies and stuff like that. Um, it, it's much different. Whereas again, as you mentioned, you know, uh, whatever the newest rendition is on Caleb, it's like, yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't even sing. First of all, I can't sing falsetto that high, um, yeah. but, but certainly wouldn't be singing that with my kids. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. You want to, um, you know, the, the scripture commands us in, in, I think it's Psalm 100 to make a loud noise. <laughs> <laughs> I just say make a pretty noise, although we should strive for beauty and holiness. Uh, but um, start with making a loud noise. Um, and, and, and again, start, start learning your parts. And, and one of the wonderful things when you hear good congregational singing, it definitely um, spoils you for the microwave meals. You know? Yeah, that's right. Well, Ben, it has been phenomenal having you on the show. I do want to point people to uh, some of your work. Of course, they can find you on Twitter. I think it's at Ben Zorns. Is that right? Correct. And then um, they can also check out your website. That's benzorns.com. Uh, Ben's got a couple new articles out, including Out Sing the Darkness, which was phenomenal uh, and very fitting for this time of year and after 2020 as well. Ben, you've also got a book out on Amazon. It's called He Rules the World. Just quickly, what is that one about? Yeah, that was uh, just a co- um, basically for the, month of, for the month of December leading up to Christmas. Uh, I wanted to write some short uh, devotionals for families to do together to sort of make sure that there's Christmas celebrations are full of, full of joy, full of Christ, um, and uh, uh, a blast the whole way. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a collection of devotionals. Um, so if you want to pick one up, you should, you know, you'll, you'll have it ready for next year. Awesome. Well, I again appreciate having you on the show. It's been a huge blessing and I think will be for our listeners as well. So thank you, Ben. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. As always, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. Really could not do this without you. Your contribution and participation in the Hard Men Podcast has been instrumental. We also want to thank those who have recently joined in the last week and a half. We've had several VIP members and a ton of people giving donations at the end of the year. So we deeply appreciate that, and especially for the way it helps this work continue. In the show notes, we'll list all the resources we've talked about in this episode. And again, be sure to check out Ben Zorn's work, the work of Christ Church, CrossPolitik, and everyone else in Moscow, Idaho. We really could not do what we do without other faithful men plodding along in the work as well. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.